This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellersley.com to learn more. So we are in part three of a series called The Dangerous Edge. I happen to have an affinity for what we're talking about. And though I have an affinity for it, and I have an affinity for the titles, this title is rather unique uh, in and of itself, I have an affinity for the titles, I have an affinity for the epic nature of this series, I also feel a vulnerability inside of me, and I just want to acknowledge that, and I felt it throughout this entire thing, that I do not want to talk big and live small, and yet I, I feel a propensity to speak a bold message and not live a bold message. I don't know if you guys have ever had that tension inside of you where it's, it's one thing to esteem the grandeur of living fully for Jesus, laying down your life for Jesus, boldly proclaiming him in a hostile situation, and then feeling the fragility and the timidity that lies deep inside of you that in the moment of testing you may actually shrink back. And I don't think that's a bad thing to recognize that in our humanity we are vulnerable to failure, but that's why we must not live in our humanity but in Christ. Our functionality needs to be in the strong refuge that is Christ. We need to find our life, our strength, our hope in him. As Paul says in Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's not be strong, Eric, in what you have here, you have something, be strong in it. And so I could be like, okay, I'm a disciplined person, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm a good communicator, all right, I'm gonna be strong in these things and maybe I can be bold for Christ in the day of testing. That would be the grave mistake of Eric Ludi. But to freshly recognize that if Eric needs to be built for the hour, I need to be built in Christ for that hour. Last week, Okay, one of my all-time favorite sermon titles, The Dangerous Games of Dangerous Men. I mean, I get stirred just thinking about it. There's, there's something about words that stirs me, right? And so as a result, you'll notice I work with words all the time. And uh, in that message, we talked about the word inured. I sort of gave a little lesson and, and it acclimated you guys all with a new vocab word, inured. And it means to be seasoned or toughened for something. And most of us have not been inured for difficulty, and as a result, when difficulty comes into our life, we crumble before it. As C.T. Studd called it, we're chocolate soldiers. When the heat turns up, we melt. And that's not the way a soldier is supposed to be. A soldier is supposed to be inured for battle, so that when battle comes, he grows 10 feet taller. And so what I've sensed is the vulnerability that the Church of Jesus Christ in North America has right now is not just a vacancy of doctrine, even though it is vacant in many situations. There are a lot of solid uh, Christians with solid doctrine, but they're not necessarily inured for difficulty, for trial, for tribulations, and for suffering. There is a doctrine in Scripture that most of us skip over, 
And many of us, and I understand why, uh, if you call it the doctrine of suffering, you can sort of understand why someone would want to skip over it. It's like, you know what? It's just not that attractive of a doctrine. However, what if you were to rephrase it the way the Bible actually teaches it? And that is, it's not just the doctrine of suffering. It's the doctrine of suffering with joy. Or you could call it the doctrine of joy-filled suffering or the doctrine of joyful suffering. If you were to look at it that way, it actually gives you a more correct picture. We as Christians do not engage in suffering as just something to grit our teeth and make through. It is literally the greatest privilege we have. Now when I say that, our mentality and our thinking is a little foggy on that point. And so we feel like we almost have to talk ourselves into a frame of mind that is counter to reality. Joy-filled suffering. Yeah, that's like pleasant pain. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. However, you know, ironically, if any of you have trained as athletes, you know what pleasant pain is. When you have lactic acid flooding through your body to your muscles, it is a certain form of pain. That's what it would be called. No pain, no gain. That's where it comes from. It's talking about lactic acid pain. And it is a pain, and yet it's a desirable pain. I want that pain. And if I'm not getting that pain, I'm not growing. And as a result, your entire mentality towards that pain is that it is gain. And as a result, your conclusion on that pain is it's good pain. I just described for you how Christianity works. I just described for you the doctrine of suffering right there. That pain is good pain. So as a result, instead of shying away from it, I don't ever want to go to a gym and exercise because I may get the pain. No, I actually want to go to the gym and exercise. You know that if you get into a good workout routine, there's a certain form of addiction that comes. I don't... The word addiction isn't a healthy one, right? But there's a certain form of addiction that comes where I need to get in and get a good workout today. Oh, I have to get to my workout. Oh, I need to, it's, it's a weird thing, but you, your body craves the exercise. I'm describing for you Christianity on the dangerous edge. You crave the challenge. I know, it's not the way we were inured to think. And so as a result, let's go into this message, which is sort of the flip on American thinking. And yet it's, biblical thinking, that I would say, instead of arguing with it, embrace it. And you're going to find a preparation begin in your soul. So listen to this title, guys. The Outrageous Joy of Being Spittle-Faced. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the word spittle, um, cut it in half and you might get close to the meaning of it. So spittle-faced, the state of having been spat upon. By the way, I made up the word spittle-faced. The state of having been spat upon and having one's face befouled by flying spittle. So that's what spittle is. It's spit, okay? But it's not as elegant and English-sounding if you just say spit, right? Spittle is more pleasant for a message in, in the church. So spittle-faced. Not many of you would look at that as a positive thing to be spittle-faced. In fact, throughout history, to be spittle-faced is the greatest shame. To stand in front of an audience and to have someone spit upon you is the ultimate degradation of humanity. There was one thing that measured with it, and that was to rip out one's beard. And oftentimes, the two would be associated. They would rip out a beard and spit upon the face. And it was the ultimate uh, diminishment of a human life. It was the equivalent of grinding someone into the dirt with the heel of your boot. Jesus had his beard ripped out and was spat upon. It's an amazing thought to think that he was willing to take that place. He was spittle-faced. And yet in his spittle-faced condition, you're going to see 
a joy that is set before him that is going to enable him to endure this, and you're going to see the greatest triumph in all of history while spittle-faced. Isn't that incredible? The strange discovery of joy on Bourbon Street. So if you've hung around Ellerslie, you may have heard this story, and I think you know every now and then there's a story that just needs to be reactivated. It needs to you know just sort of have its day on the stage again. And this is one of those stories that I, as I've been going through this, I cannot think of a more significant moment in my life for understanding this than this story on Bourbon Street. So I was a missionary. This is way, way back in the day. I was probably 19 or 20, and now I'm 50, just to give you an idea of the, uh, the length of time. that the, this, is, this is a rewinding of the clock, big time. And yet this is the first taste I'd ever had of it. I remember reading the scriptures of the disciples slash apostles rejoicing when they faced trials, when they were beaten and they go out rejoicing. And Paul's saying rejoice, he's in prison. It's like, what? I see it, I don't get it. And Paul and Silas singing in the prison cell. What is that? I see it, but I don't get it. I esteem it because it's biblical. I don't understand it, though, practically. And so I had always grown up with a desire to please the crowd. And I'm guessing many of you are wired similarly to that. I think it's a human thing, not just an Eric thing. That we desire to be approved and applauded, we don't desire to be sneered at, scoffed at, mocked, ridiculed, uh, reviled. That isn't what we are naturally inclined towards. And so as a result, when I came to Christ, I desired Christianity because I recognized Jesus gave everything for me. And I recognized he was reviled, but I still desired to make him pleasant to the world. It's like if I could repackage him, the world would then applaud Jesus. I mean, doesn't that just make sense? That we would do our best to make Jesus palatable so that the world would then like him and be saved by him. I mean, it really is a brilliant strategy, and we're not the only ones in our generation that have ever had that thought. It's a human thought. Because in the natural sense, we do not want to share in the sufferings of our Christ. We do not want to have our beard ripped out, I know some of you ladies in here are like, excuse me, or have our face spat upon. And yet Christ entering into this culture, into this world, that's what is expected. And so those of us that are willing to step into Christ's righteousness, willing to step into his superhero outfit, are literally setting ourselves up for the same treatment that he had. But many of us reject that notion and we want to change that notion. And so this is where the tension comes in. And I was in that tension. I'm on the mission field. I'm actually in uh, New Orleans. It was right before Mardi Gras, so almost this exact same time of year. And I was so uncomfortable. And I'm with this radical missions team that is ready to go to Bourbon Street to share the gospel. And they have this big wooden cross. And they're going to stand in the middle of Bourbon Street with all... Uh, if any of you know about Mardi Gras, you know the darkness, you know the filth, you know the evil. I mean, this is like worship of the devil, basically, if, if you could say it. Outright, blatant, and it's a mockery of everything good and righteous and noble and true. And this group wants to go in the middle of that, and they're like, Eric, did you want to join us? I was like, no, no, thank you. I, I have some other things I need to get done tonight. 
I didn't have anything else I needed to get done that night, but I was quickly racing in my brain to come up with something I needed to get done because I didn't like that version of sharing Jesus. I didn't like the version of Jesus, sharing Jesus that just sort of sets you out in front of people and opens you up for rejection and <clears throat> being spittle-faced. And so what's funny is this guy, this leader said, Eric, would you at least pray about it? Well, I didn't like that at all. You, don't, you never want to have to pray about something like going out and sharing Jesus. That's the wrong thing to ever have to bring up. You know, it's like, God, did you want me to go out and share about it? Oh, you don't want to have to pray about it. And so I, I agreed, and I was so deeply convicted. I knew that God wanted me to go with this team. And yet, oh, wow, it was opposite of everything I was wired for. So we're, we're on, even as we parked the cars way out in the middle of nowhere and we had to carry the pieces of the cross, even the pieces of the cross I was ashamed of. So this group is carrying the pieces, and usually, you know, I'm an honorable guy. I was trained by my parents to help people carry things if they... I did not want to touch that cross. And I even noticed as I'm watch, walking about 20 feet away, coming up with a reason to look over a bridge over here and act like I'm looking at the water while they're walking over there, I didn't want to be associated with this group. It was, it was a form of lunacy is what it looked like. I, I, I'm not with them. God, what is wrong with me? Why am I wanting to separate myself from this group? I mean, because I, I love Jesus, don't get me wrong, but there was something about this. I wanted the world's approval, and God had to put his finger on this, and I did not deem the message of this that is found in here true, that it is actually the greatest joy to face a trial. Eh, that's not the greatest joy. I could tell you some great joys. That's not one of them. And so when we got to the Bourbon Street, they're setting up the cross, and they were a whole bunch of short people. And they could not get it in the top beam, so they're looking around for the one guy who's over six foot, and so they're like, hey, Ludie, like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so here I've been avoiding this cross the whole time. The next thing you know, I have to stick my hand on it and fix it in place. I'm like the chief problem now in the middle of Bourbon Street. After that, I'm red-faced, and I run off to the corner and hide under the shadow of something, and I'm evangelizing. You know, I'm waiting for someone to come up to me and say, what are you standing here for? And I go, well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm here to share Jesus. Oh, tell me about him. It's usually not how it works, by the way. However, I was struggling internally, recognizing that there was something in me that was ashamed. And I didn't like it, but I didn't know how to overcome it. And finally, I, you could just see this group conspiring, recognizing that, you know, they need to sort of help Eric enter into the real version of this thing. And so one of them came over and said, Eric, we were just wondering if you wanted to hold the cross. Now, after everything I've told you so far, what do you think Eric's response would be? No way. You know what I said? Okay. <laughs> Even to my surprise, it's like, what did I just say? And I find myself walking towards it. When I grabbed a hold of that cross in the middle of Bourbon Street, I d I've tried many times throughout my life to express what happened but I stepped across a line into a new zone, into a new territory of peace and of joy that I'd never before known. As I was standing there with that cross, I have never felt so happy in my entire life. And it was like this life lesson that I've never forgotten as I stood there for three hours in the middle of Bourbon Street with everyone yelling at me, cursing at me, throwing their beer on me. And, I mean, I actually wanted someone to come up and punch me so I could forgive them. 
That was the weirdest thing. It's like, what? I wanted to share in Christ's sufferings. I've never up to that point had that thought. And I remember thinking, I understand Paul. I get it now. But the only way to get it is to step across that line. If you stay in the comfort zone under the veranda and stare at the, the group over there being crazy and say, well, uh, you know, I'll support them with my money, not with you know, my, my life, you miss out on something. There is an outrageous joy that is found, but it's not found in the comfort zone. It's found in the awkward zone. You have to cross that line. So here's James 1-2. And you're going to notice it's a half scripture because I'm going to build this scripture out. Now, we're in the book of James, a very fascinating book to start with. But in the book of James, we're going to see this unpacking of this idea of a true faith that works. Now, you can hear that in two different ways. Faith that works, which means it actually is successful in its endeavor, which is a good way to hear that. Also, a faith that works, it does something. There's two ways that the human life can work. One is in our own effort, in our own strength, which is how many of us try and live our Christian life. The other is in Christ's strength. The book of James is talking about believing in Jesus, entering into Christ's strength, and then working here. You want to see a real faith? You believe and then work over here. And it will change you and the world around you. So my brethren, count it all joy when? Now, many of you know the scripture, so as a result, you're filling it in in your mind. Let's just imagine we don't know the second half of this scripture. We have this little fragment of scripture. It's cut off. We're like, oh, oh, I need to know when. My brethren, count it all joy when. You're like, when what? When, 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 when am I supposed to count it all joy? Well, first of all, I want to unpack what all joy is, and then we'll know what we need to look for the when for. So we're going to break it up into two Greek words. One is pas, which is an adjective. It's going to describe the, the joy. It's the word all. So where it says all, now some of you, like I grew up with the NIV and it's pure. And I actually really like the word pure here, even though I understand why some of the more literal specific word for word, tra word, for word translations don't use that. I understand why the NIV uses it. Because listen to what it is. It's the full thing. It's the entire idea. It's the purest, most essential form of something. It's the quintessential way to accomplish something. It's all. So if you're going to have the pos uh, understanding of something, it's like, well, that's like, it's the, it's the real, it's the full, it's the purest form of something. So the purest form of what? Kara, which is the noun, joy. Gladness, delight, cheerfulness. The purest, most full, well-orbed form of gladness, of joy, of cheerfulness. Wouldn't you like to know how to have that? So paskara, which is an adjective plus a noun, it's the fullness of joy, the extremity of gladness, the chief delight, the most robust cheerfulness. So, my brethren, count it paskara, the fullest, fullness of joy, the extremity of gladness, the chief delight, the most robust cheerfulness, when? 
And then we cut off the sentence. All we have is a fragment. Oh, no. I need to know when I'm supposed to count this. What is the chief delight, the most robust form of cheerfulness? Oh, I must know. So my brethren counted all joy when. See, some of you are just moving to the edge of your seat. You have to know the rest of the fragment. You see, there's, it's, a, it's a fun exercise to do this in your study of Scripture because many of us oftentimes fill in blanks and we never think through the fact that there's an answer in the very th- Scripture we know. We're supposed to consider something the purest form of joy, the most exquisite form of cheerfulness. There is something we're supposed to consider we're supposed to count it. It's an accounting term. Count it. You know, put it up on the, on the board as, as the purest form of joy. as the most extraordinary, most fulfilling version of it. So we're going to delay this a little, and I'm going to give my expanded version. My brethren, count it all joy. Consider it the fullness of joy, the extremity of gladness, the chief delight, the most robust cheerfulness. When? See, some of you are, that didn't memorize the scripture, you're being driven crazy right now. See, this will teach you to memorize some scripture before you come here and listen to Eric preach. So let's give some great options of what the when could lead to, okay? (laughs) Some great options. When, so my brethren, consider it all joy when. When what? When you find earthly success? Uh, Just ponder these because your when and the answer to that is a substitute and a counterfeit oftentimes. You have placed something in this position that is actually not what God has placed in it. And so as a result, we consider it paschara when we find earthly success, when we receive a high honor, when we come into a lot of money. Oh boy, I would consider that paschara. Boy, wouldn't that be amazing if I won the Lottery? Oh boy, would that be Pascara. When you win a difficult contest, how about the Super Bowl? If, I, if you're an athlete, you want to win the epitome or the, the pos version of your sport. And Super Bowl, the, the World Series, the NBA championships, whatever it is, you want to win that Pascara. That would be it. If you could win that pos version of it, you would have Pascara. How about your girl says yes to your proposal? Some of you are in here like, oh, that has to remain at least top in the, yeah, high up in the list, Eric. I know you're going to displace these with something, but let's keep that one high. It is a pretty special moment, I have to admit. Preston, do you have any opinion on that one? It is a good one. Poscar. Is it Poscar though? See, now I'm going to test your theology. <laughs> How about this? It's a boy or it's a girl. Either way, I've had both experiences. And it's amazing. It truly is remarkable. But is it Paschara? It's joy, but is it Pos? Is it, the, is it the epitome? Is it the quintessential version of it? Is it the fullest, most robust version of it? How about when all is comfort, ease, and retirement? Oh, boy, when that day comes when I can stop working and I can just retire and I can play golf all day long. Which, by the way... Th- the idea of retirement sounds so bad to me. I, I've never been attracted to it. I love to do things. It just sounds terrible. So that doesn't work for me, but for you it might. So these are some great options. Don't you get the sense that I'm going to throw all these out and they're not going to make, they're not going to be Pascara. See, those of you that know the scripture, 
you know, you're, you know where I'm going with this. But at the same time, I want you to feel it. I want you to recognize how wrong we are in our thinking. Because the Bible actually is very clear on this. My brethren, count it all joy. Consider it the fullness of joy, the extremity of gladness, the chief delight, the most robust cheerfulness when you fall into various trials. <laughs> I just think, I mean, yeah, what, is, what does humanity do with that? That is the most absurd sounding thing and yet here's what I'm going to say. That's truth. Whatever you're thinking that's replacing that is the absurd thing. You literally have a counterfeit when sitting there hogging up that truth spot in your soul. This is what God's truth says. So wait a minute. Is it really true that the pinnacle of happiness, the peak of joy, the apex of gladness is found when I encounter Counter a trial? That, that wasn't in my figuring. I didn't have that one uh, on the list. How did that work on your bucket list? Faced more trials. <laughs> Something's wrong with our bucket list. Poquilos, it's an adjective. Various, manifold, all sorts, any kind. And then we have prosmos, which is a noun, which is a trial, a test, a proving, a smelting of metal, a pruning of a vine, a threshing or a winnowing of wheat. So that, when you put these together, you get poquilos parasmos. sort of fun to say. It's an adjective plus a noun, and it means any kind of trial, any sort of test, every single challenge, every little difficulty and every tribulation now, I'm, it doesn't, this isn't part of the definition. I just had to add it in because I can't help myself. And that is, is a dream come true? Could you imagine if you could take and adopt that mentality that is on the screen right now? Any kind of trial, any sort of test, every single challenge, every little difficulty and every tribulation is a dream come true. It's the quintessential apex, pinnacle point of joy. You want to live a joy-filled life? You want more trials? Okay, I know. It doesn't seem to sit right with us, does it? My brethren, so this is a fuller version of it, just you know, for all of you that like amplified versions. My brethren, count it all joy. Consider it the fullness of joy, the extremity of gladness, the chief delight, the most robust cheerfulness when you fall into various trials, any kind of trial, any sort of test, every challenge and every difficulty. And by the way, this is what the entire Bible teaches. This isn't just this one scripture. This is actually the message of scripture. We're supposed to rejoice always. We're supposed to give thanks in everything. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Whoa. You see, it's not just his will because he wants you to have a morose outlook. And he wants you to have a grim perspective on life. Boy, boy, Christians get suffering. Boy, the world gets pleasure, we get suffering. No, we get pleasure through suffering. <laughs> I know, that's a, that's a strange one, isn't it? It doesn't matter what comes our way, out comes joy. It doesn't matter what difficulty, good or bad, it doesn't matter, out comes cheer. You see, when you're built like a Christian, nothing causes you to flinch. Nothing causes you to fear. Why would you fear something that's only going to make you stronger? Why would you fear going in and exercising if you knew it was going to make you stronger? Why would you fear running a mile if you knew it was going to increase your cardiovascular strength? 
Why would you fear a little difficulty if you knew that little difficulty was going to be marshaled by God into a greater power? Pokilos parasmos equals paskara. I know. See, you, you guys are getting a great Greek lesson today, aren't you? So basically, every trial is an opportunity to discover the most pure and perfect joy and gladness. Fact. Right there. If I could just somehow inject this into your thinking patterns where you would adopt it instead of reject it. That's the hard part. It's like sticking in you know, someone else's uh, organ into this, into our body, and it can get, get rejected. That's the same with this type of thing. It's like, okay, I need to somehow get this inside of you, but I know that you have a propensity to reject it. <laughs> we all do. Even though we agree that Scripture is true, even though we agree that God is 100% correct, he cannot lie, for whatever reason, we really struggle with adopting his mindset towards these things. Why is a trial the epitome of joy? So that's what I want to unpack in our remaining time, is I want to walk through the fact that there is a reason why, and it's not just because God's saying, hey, I want you to defy reality. I want you to con yourself into thinking something that actually isn't true. No, actually... God's saying, I want to give you the truth. This is, in actuality, the greatest joy. But you're missing it, and you're living in a sub-tier of happiness because you are rejecting my way of living. If you were to rise out of your doldrums, you would find that I have the ultimate version of living, which is what this whole series is on. It's called The Dangerous Edge. It's the place none of us would ever think of going. Why would I go to The Dangerous Edge? And it all started from this one uh, meeting I had with uh, the president of Bethany International, Dan Brocky, who I had a meeting with. And he was talking about their mission statement, their purpose statement, which was bring the church where it is not and then teach others to do the same. So they reach unreached people groups. And, you know, I esteem that and I think it's great. But there was something about the entire discussion that caused me to flip my mentality, because it's very easy sometimes to say, well, I'm glad you're called to that. Whew, glad I'm not. As opposed to recognizing, it's like, why do you get the privilege to go to the unreached? God, why did you stick me here in Windsor? I, I would like a more dangerous edge to go to. And that was what this series has been on, is this idea. They had one of their board members that came in, and he sort of put his finger in each of their faces, uh, and he said, look, guys, if we're going to preach this, we need to live it. And so he moved to New Delhi to live on the dangerous edge. And that stirs me. There's something about that that's very fascinating to me. And you see, there is a robust cheerfulness. Just look at the life of Paul. Everything in, in Paul's life we really don't want for our life. And yet, have you ever seen a happier guy? That's one of the reasons I didn't like the movie about Paul the Apostle that came out uh, with Jim Caviezel in it is because it made Paul somber. It's like, okay, you're missing Paul. Right there, Paul is in a prison cell rejoicing. This is one delighted character. It doesn't matter what happens to him. He's the Cheerio in milk. You press him down and bloop, he comes right back to the surface. Ah, press him down again, bloop. Oh, that drives the enemy crazy. Joy that is unsinkable that is incorrigible and uncorrectable. You cannot torture it out of someone. They just start singing all the louder. You feed them to wild beasts and they praise God and even run towards the wild beasts. It's like, oh, this is going wrong for the devil. Very right for the Christian. 
The reason we miss this is because we misunderstand the idea of trial. When you hear the word trial, it's a negative term to you. And yet, have you ever had it where you're studied up for a test and you feel really good? Like everyone else is cramming the night before. I, I used to have a strategy in, in college where I would study for the test and I would get to bed early the night before. So I already had my studying in and I would get to bed early and probably felt rather smug about it too, right? You know, that everyone else is cramming and drinking their coffee and wake up with big, you know, bags under their eyes and I'm ready. When you're ready for a test, what do you want? The test. You want the test when you're ready for the test. When do you not want the test? When you're not ready for it. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you have a flashback to school and you have a test in your dream and you didn't know about the test? Terrible. I don't like those dreams. You see, when you're not ready for a test, you hate tests. But what if we were inured and prepared and seasoned and readied for tests? What do we want? Tests. Have you ever had it where you've memorized some flashcards and then you hand them to someone like, test me? And what... Why is it joyful to answer flashcard questions? And then you give the answer, and they're like, wow, you know all these. That's right. <laughs> There's just something about it. A trial isn't a negative thing. It is a proving of where you're at. It's a proving of what is inside. What is inside? So trial. So we're going to translate trial to be an EGP moment. You guys have heard of those, haven't you? Probably not. I made it up. It's an extreme growth potential moment. It's like in life, we want to grow stronger. If you knew that there were certain moments where you could grow 10 times faster, if there were certain situations that if you got into that, wow, you could have like massive growth. If you were a businessman and you recognized that in certain times in the economy, there were great times to invest, what would you do? You would look for those times. You know what ironically those times are? It's a downturn in the market. That's just the irony of it. The same thing is true in the kingdom of heaven. When there's a downturn, it's actually the best time to invest your life as a Christian. The best time to give is when you have little. It's actually the best time because the investment in the kingdom of heaven is so massive. The returns are so great. So as a result, in a strange way, we get a smirk on our face as Christians and we desire those moments. It's like, God, could you give me a few more investment opportunities? So look at what an EGP moment is. This, these are some quotes. Like if it, there was a marketing slogan for it, like an advertisement that came on the TV, uh, it would say, mature 10 times faster right here. And you click on it, it's a trial. <laughs> Increase 10 times your spiritual wealth. I'm not talking about physical wealth. This isn't a health, wealth, and prosperity message. Hopefully you've picked up on that somewhere along the line. However, there is something known as spiritual wealth. It's the deposit of grace and faith that we have. And guess what? You could increase 10 times that spiritual wealth if you visit right here. What, what did you walk into? A difficulty? Grow 10 times stronger. Reveal Jesus 10 times sharper. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm interested. Tell me more. You see, I'm interested in growing stronger in the kingdom of heaven. This is my great desire. But am I willing to allow God's answer to the question, God, how could I grow stronger? God, what is the chief end of my life? Well, if it's to reveal him, if it's to love him and to know him, then am I willing to allow him to explain to me how that is gained? And what if I find that it's through the door of difficulty, trial, and suffering? Would I shy away and shrink back and say, God, I don't know actually that I'm interested in that. We have the Pilgrim musical here right now. In the very beginning, they sort of have this slew, or I think you guys call it like a sewer of, not, of, of despond or despair or of doubt uh, that Christian and pliable fall into. And yeah, 
if you knew that there were difficulties along the way, that it's a lifelong journey, there's certain people that just give up and they turn around and they say, I want to have nothing to do with this. And yet, the great adventure needs to have a different lens where we actually get excited about the fact that there's challenges, but we have the victory. There is, if you watch a great action adventure, if there's no bad guy in it, or let me say it this way, if there's not a really good bad guy, like a really difficult to overcome bad guy, the movie stinks. What you want is a great arch nemesis so that the hero has to rise higher to overcome it. The greater the trial in the storyline, the greater the story. Because we actually are built to appreciate and to appropriate the idea that overcoming obstacle is good. Because we were designed by God for that. Hollywood didn't invent this. The reason we're wired for this is because we are children. We have been crafted and created by God Almighty who loves story. He seems to. He seems to tell the best ones. The dangerous game. The point of it all. So what's the end? Know Jesus, love Jesus, reveal Jesus. Yes, that's an oversimplification of the entire Bible right there. But what is the game? What are we after here? That we would know Jesus, yes. That we would love Jesus and then out of our life would be seen Jesus. How's that going to happen? Guys, you need to find some good EGP moments. So what's needed to really thrive in this game? As many EGP moments as God allows you to find, because EGPs are the great catalyst to supernatural growth in Jesus, exponential strengthening by Jesus, and world-altering sharing of Jesus. If you're going to do this, you know what you want? EGPs. So could you imagine if all of us just like, let the games begin, and then like some gong went off, and then all of you were like, I need to find some EGPs. You know that it's hard to find EGPs. They, they do come to you. You really don't need to dig them up. At the same time, you can set yourself into positions to collect them faster. You know how? Be bold for Jesus. It's incredible how much more you can collect when you actually start speaking truth, when you obey the Holy Spirit and says, talk to that person. You can find more EGPs by doing that. However, if you live timidly, you're not going to find your good EGP moments, which means you will not grow. So James 1, 2 through 3. Now I'm adding to our scripture. You guys are going to become experts on this scripture by the time this ends, right? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Bonus piece here, guys. All we had was a fragment before this. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now for many of us, we're not that impressed with the outcome. So we know we're supposed to consider it Paschara, the epitome of joy, the essence of what joy is all about, the purest form of it. Okay, we got that. So what am I getting out of this? Patience. Patience, patience is what I'm getting? You see, your American or North American mindset towards patience probably isn't correct. You see, we think of patience as standing in front of a microwave and not complaining for a minute while your popcorn is popping. <laughs> That's actually not what patience is. You know what the martyrs had that enabled them to endure great sufferings? They had patience. Patience is actually what is needed to go through any trial and come out the other side with a smile. You see, patience is what comes of embracing the small trials in our life as we become hardier, more robust as Christians. We grow into Hercules is what happens. What we want is patience. 
It's the outcome of the EGP. It is the reason why we have joy is because this joy is getting us what we need, which is this robust thing known as patience. I know patience doesn't translate very well for us. Neither does trial. Almost everything in this scripture doesn't translate very well for us. So let's describe patience as heavenly gold. It's like, boy, would I love some of that heavenly gold. Not the earthly stuff that, you know, when, when I leave this earth, I have to leave behind. That's sort of depressing if you think about it. You invest all your time and you get all this earthly stuff and then you have to wave at it and say goodbye to it. That's not a good investment strategy. But if you knew that you could invest in the heavenly, in the eternal, which, by the way, is a lot longer than your life down here, wouldn't you be interested? Could you imagine a business seminar on this? How we can invest in heavenly gold? And I'm going to give you some good investment strategies. Look for trials. Collect them. Gather them together. Exercise them in your life. Difficulties are your chief investment moment. How many people do you think are going to attend this? In fact, some of you are thinking, I'm not sure I should have attended this morning. So what is patience? Listen to this. It's an extreme and world-altering revelation of Christ's love, his unshakability, his immovability, and his fearlessness, his perseverance, and his power. And it's a deeply, deeply, deeply intimate bonding of the believer to the king of kings, impossible to break. And this is why a believer can come in one side of a trial and come out the other side stronger with a smile and a song. What do they have? Well, they have patience. It's an unbreakable bond. It is a stability of soul that is able to be rocked and shaken and not move. We want patience. How do you get patience? Well, start considering your trials as Pascara. The pinnacle of joy. The greatest thing to have in life. Wow. See, I'm still not sure if you're convinced. I, I still see some bubble thoughts with question marks dancing above your heads. Long and short, if you want to win the dangerous game, you need patience. And in order to get patience, you need trials. And as many as God allows you to gather. You see, have you ever had it where, you know, many of us focus on money, for instance. And you like, look over here, and this one guy has all sorts of money. And you're like, why does he get all the money and I don't? Why did I get a trial instead? You know what it should be? It should be the rich guy over here going, God, why did you give me earthly sustenance so I didn't have a trial? I'm jealous of Eric Ludy over here who gets all these juicy trials. God, why does he get all the trials? See, now you're thinking like a Christian. Why do they get the trials? Why do they get to live in, uh, in Burma? Why do they get to live in East Timor? Why do they get to go to Afghanistan? Why do I get stuck here in Windsor? God! <laughs> Are you willing to start thinking as a Christian? What would happen to us as the church if we actually agreed with God and believed his word? So God, I... I don't fully understand it, but I agree with you. And I'm willing to be changed to match that, what you say in your word. The game of spittle on the face. The Salvation Army, a great illustration of this, guys. Uh, if you've ever studied the Salvation Army, you have to sort of overlook the, uh, the bell ringers of the day. And I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying it's more of a social work now. When you think of the Salvation Army, you think of... Uh, you know, raising money for the homeless or the poor. And, you know, hey, wonderful thing to do. However, the original Salvation Army was not just bell ringers. They were soul ringers. They shook the nations. 
in the first few years of the Salvation Army, over 300,000 people came into the kingdom of heaven. It was a radical, dangerous edge mission society. And oh, I miss it. If I, if, if I could say what Ellerslie esteems, it's that model. I don't really want to be bell ringers in 100 years from now. <laughs> so I don't like that part of the model. But I do love what was originally there. And it was an army. It was a mentality of danger. So I'm going to read you something. This is the introduction to The Bold Return of the Dunces, which is a book that I wrote that introduces the idea behind Ellerslie. So the audacious march down Brickback Lane. So it's excerpted from the introduction to The Bold Return of the Dunces. The east end of London in the mid to late 1800s was a place of darkness. Jack the Ripper roamed the streets of Whitechapel while poverty strode alongside him as if it were his lackey. Death, despair, drunkenness, and disease were more common than a cold, and it seemed hope was yesteryear's fancy. But as is true in every season of darkness, God raises up a band of heavenly fools to shine the ancient light of truth. And so he did in East London. God commissioned the Hallelujah Singing Salvation Army to start marching in the midst of this destitution. This audacious band of soul winners was not received with the august acclamation you would think that those despairing and in desperate need of hope would supply to their rescuers. Instead of acclaim, applause, and gratitude, they were met with grave hostility. Almost always a mob numbering in the thousands stood to block the way of the Salvation Army. And such was the case as the army marched toward Sheffield, England one day. The shouts of, kill him, rang in the streets. A savage mob hooted, spat, screamed, cursed, hurled filth, refuse, and brickbats, and charged headlong at the humble band of Christian men and women with malevolent intent. The motley band of marching saints was led by William Booth, who sat upon a carriage with an open top, fully exposed to the hurling debris. His wife, Catherine, was seated beside him. It wasn't the first time he had received this kind of reception. It wasn't the first time he had arrived at his destination bloodied and bruised, and it certainly would not be the last. Throughout history, the bold return of the dunces has never been received with applause or acceptance. But amazingly, even amid the flying filth and the venomous insults, Booth and his followers seem to have faces of angels. Looking closely, one might even detect the presence of genuine smiles playing on their lips. Booth charged his followers onward through the opposition. He commissioned them not to retaliate, but simply march on, beating their drums, playing their horns, and embracing the mockery. So they marched, singing at the top of their lungs, declaring to anyone who would listen that the Son of God has conquered sin and death on their behalf. They finally arrived at their destination in the same way that all Christ's fools arrive, bruised but blessed, clothes torn but hearts overflowing with love, insulted but shouting hallelujah, bloodied but invigorated and ready to go right back out and do it all again. This scene clearly enunciates our vision for Ellerslie. We want to build up men and women ready to march down Brickbat Lane, straight through the venomous mob, shouting hallelujah at every malevolent attempt against their lives and dignity, unashamedly declaring the victory of Jesus Christ to all who will listen. This is the bold return of the dunces. To be a fool is not something I would advise to anyone, but to become a fool for Christ is truly a noble pursuit. It is for this purpose that Ellerslie was founded. We are a school that exists to raise up fools for Christ. For the kingdom and the king's glory, Eric Ludi. I'm stirred by that. I want to be a part of that. The bragging grounds. How much spittle do you have on your face? In the Chinese church, they have a bragging ground. How many years have you suffered in prison? Only 10? We got a guy over here with 15. How about you? 
20? 20. Whoa. And then the guy with 30 years walks in and everyone is silent. There's no greater honor than to have suffered for Jesus amidst the church. The world doesn't necessarily crown you <laughs> for such a distinguished honor as suffering 30 years in solitary. I don't know if anyone's ever done 30 years in solitary, but 30 years in prison. That's a badge of honor. It's the marks of Christ. It's a privilege. Do we have bragging grounds today? Do we understand what we are supposed to be esteeming? We don't esteem deep pockets and successful lives and just big houses and leer jets. Ease and comfort isn't our end. That's not Pascara. That's not the pinnacle of joy. But someone who boldly represents Jesus and is unashamed and is full of love and life and is willing to give of their life. This is something higher. And we as the church know it. So we esteem it. We support it. We're inspired by it. We don't try and excuse ourselves from it. The Steve Camp story. So when I was in missionary school, same missionary school that it led me to uh, the streets of uh, the Bourbon Street situation, we had a, a, a drama group, and it was Angels Against Demons, and multiple times as I've seen the Pilgrim musical unfold, I've realized how bad we were. <laughs> it was terrible. Next to this, oh, this is so good. This pilgrim musical is so powerful, and our little drama was so bad. Uh, but in this, we, we were at a Steve Camp concert. You'd had to be sort of in the older side of things to remember Steve Camp, but he was literally possibly at the top of the Christian music world at one point in time. And Steve Camp had a deep conviction that actually caused him to lose his entire position in the Christian music industry. And he pinned the 95 theses to the Nashville door one day. It was like in the late 90s. And literally he lost all contracts, lost everything with the music industry. Because he said this industry is owned by secular uh, uh, businesses. It is not, it, it prohibits claiming Jesus as the only way. All of these things, we cannot participate in this. If we're going to be music musicians for Christ, we need to do it different. And he got blackballed. Quite, quite the, the story. But I got to meet Steve Camp in this time period. And he had a big impact on my life. And so we're, we had the, our drama, as awkward as that is to think about now, uh, uh, before or in the middle of one of his concerts. And then I remember he took us backstage. We were at an outdoor like tent, so backstage was behind the tent. And he talked with us, and he said just a few things that greatly impacted my life. I still remember them to this day. He says, you want to know why uh, secular music is better than Christian music? This is in the day when that was definitely true. He said, because uh, they're more sold out to their sin than we are to our Savior. And that was one thing he said. And then he said another thing, describing his relationship with Keith Green. And he said he was discipled by Keith Green, and I think Leonard Ravenhill had an impact on his life too, two guys that had a big impact on mine, so that was very intriguing to me. And then he made this statement about he had been out sharing Jesus, and he got beat up. And he was roughed up pretty bad, mocked and ridiculed. He came back. I don't know if he was bloody. I, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I remember he was pretty bad off. And he came to Keith and was sort of whining with his voice, like, he did this to me. And then Keith sort of looks at him and goes, hey, hey. You know, so I picture him going on his cheeks. Hey, rejoice. This is a privilege. 
What's wrong with you? This is an honor. And I, at the time, I couldn't see it as an honor. So even when he's telling the story, I felt like Keith Green was slapping my cheeks. That's an honor? It's a joy? You have the privilege of representing Jesus. You have some spittle on your cheek? Praise God for it. In fact, don't wipe it off for a month. That's, that's golden right there. Okay, maybe you should wipe it off. But uh, <clears throat> the game of the lowest place. I remember I was at a... Uh, Promise Keepers event. This is years ago, right back in, the, in that point of time when they were gathering tens of thousands of men in arenas. And we were in McNichols Arena, which is, used to be in Denver where the Denver Nuggets played. And so it was packed full. And I still remember this mob came in and were you know, chanting against Bill McCartney at the time. It was really fun. It was like a battle. And this one guy got up to the, the front, and I remember him saying this. And these little things stand out to your young mind when you're forming in Christianity. And that's why I cherish some of the root system that I have because it's, it's prepared me for this even though it didn't always teach me how. It prepared me with the thought process that I'm supposed to rejoice when this happens even though I don't know how to do it. And the, the statement was this. I don't want to be outserved by this guy. If he comes and washes my feet, then I need to go and find someone else's feet to wash because I have to get to the lowest place. This is the game of the lowest place. So, and then this guy's over here. Well, if you take the lowest place, then I'm going to go wash this guy's feet and somehow get below you. I, we, we're aiming for the lowest place, not for the highest. And I, I just thought that was a wonderful twist on it to actually turn the mentality of instead of trying to climb a ladder to the highest point in culture, and that is the greatest influence, to be willing to go to the lowest place and have all of us as Christians say, why did he get the lowest place? And then begin to look for a lower place. Today's game. I've been giving a lot of games out, uh, free games. You guys, no one's paid me for that that I can see uh, yet. But I gave out games in week one, games in week two. I think I gave out five games last week, okay, for you guys to be exercised. I don't know if any of you have been playing my games but they're good games, okay? This game is called the No Tick Challenge. Sounds fascinating, doesn't it? Let me introduce you to the game. The moment you are struck with a trial, the clock starts ticking. How long does it take you to start rejoicing? And how long does it take that rejoicing to become genuine, thankful, and praise-filled? Have you ever noticed that you can rejoice more out of duty and out of obligation than out of reality? So you're like, Lord, I thank you for this. But, yeah, but okay, that's good. That's, that's when the first clock starts ticking, but then the clock keeps going to see when it becomes genuine. And we'll keep two markers for it. It's interesting because this idea came up when I was in missionary school, and this one man told me, he, he was given sort of the no-tick ch no challenge for a different topic, which was humility. And he said, Eric, the measurement of humility is the moment you recognize that you are wrong, the clock starts ticking to the moment you acknowledge that wrong and you humble yourself. That's your measurement of humility. Nope. <laughs> we like to wait a few days, maybe multiple weeks, and then it simmers down and feels a little more, I'm sorry for what happened three months ago. It's a little easier. It's really hard when you say something and in the middle of even saying it, you recognize it's wrong and you stop saying, excuse me, excuse me, I'm saying something that's proud. That's, that's incorrect. Will you forgive me for that? <laughs> that's really hard, but that's the measurement of humility. So this is the no-tick challenge. This is how you take your trials. When your trial is dished out to you, I mean, it's a golden trial, guys. This is a dream situation. How quickly do you rejoice? When we begin to have no tick between when it comes and when we're rejoicing, it's a pretty good sign. 
For many of us, we have that wrestling match season. We have that gap of time where the clock is ticking and we're you know, gathering some serious points against ourselves, right? And then finally, we're like, you know, I think I'm supposed to rejoice about this. Then we have a mm, unimpassioned rejoicing session of God, I just want to thank you for this because I'm supposed to rejoice always and supposed to give thanks and everything. And I, you know, I don't really feel like it, but I'm doing it. Unto the actual point where we remember that this is Paschara and we count it the highest joy. Thank you, Lord, for out of this you are going to make me stronger. Lord, out of this you are going to reveal yourself to the world. Out of this you are going to showcase your love to me and to others. I embrace this heartily. Okay, guys, I'm going to give you another game. I, you know, I wasn't planning on this, but I snuck it in because some of you know that I love point games. And so I figured I might want to make a point version of this game. And that's a, a, a tradition around Ellerslie is I always keep points. And uh, some people don't like my point games because I have a tendency to make my point games always give me more points, uh, which is part of the, the fun of the game for me. I have some great games. And so if you ever want to play the point game with me, I'd love to introduce you to you. This is a version of the point game. And uh, if you are mocked, ridiculed, laughed at, or verbally berated because of your loving stand for Jesus, that's one point. Doesn't that sound fun? It's like, I got a point today. And then someone else comes in, I got five. You're like, what? And then you go out the next day to try and beat them, right? This is great. And then how about this? Two points per occurrence. If you are spat upon, struck, tripped, shoved, or drenched in someone's beer because of your loving stand for Jesus. It's worth two points. Isn't that amazing? You can gather points. See, I love points. And so that's, maybe this is a game just for me. I'm not sure. Some of you might be point inclined, and so you might like that. The spittle. Remember, if you want to understand what spittle is, you cut that word in half and you get spit. Matthew 26, 67, then they spat in his face. Matthew 27, 30, then they spat on him. Mark 15, 19, then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. The highest degree of degradation is right there. Jesus, our model, our pattern, our Savior, our Redeemer, our God, came before us and played the game. He went to the dangerous edge on our behalf. Not so that he can just say, hey guys, I lived a triumphant life so that you can live your dull life, but so that now you, by my Holy Spirit, by my power, in my clothing, can actually follow me. 1 Peter 2.21 for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Uh, but God, there's spittle in that direction. I know. It's golden. You want that. According to Eric's points game, that's worth two points. Can't you see God work, whispering that to you? The wonder of spittle. I know many of you don't think of spittle as a wondrous thing. When I bring up manure... I say the same thing. Most of us don't think manure is a wonderful thing, but hey, if you're a gardener, manure is worth a lot. The same thing is true with spittle. When received as if heavenly power rested in it, heavenly power really is revealed. You guys know how I'm going to twist this one and how I'm going to use spittle to suddenly become a power agent? John 9, 6. When he, Jesus, had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. It's an amazing thing. You can take spittle as a negative or you could take it 
as something that God is going to build you stronger through. This man is going to gain sight because of spittle. Isn't that an amazing thought? When we receive spittle as if it is in, sense, in a sense in the name of Christ, we are receiving it unto our life as a fertilizer, as a strengthening agent, as an extreme growth opportunity, an investment opportunity for the ages. It actually becomes exactly that. Father, I ask that you would convert the idea of trial, difficulty, and suffering in our minds. That you would acquaint us with what it means to follow you no matter the cost. Lord, I pray that we would not hesitate to agree with you this morning. But Lord, may we not just think high and lofty thoughts today. May we have this truth driven into the depths of our being so that we live it out in the tire tread, tread level of our lives. Here we are, Lord Jesus. Send us. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.